Before we start today's episode, we wanted to share a quick message. Six years ago this month, a reporter named Austin Tice, who was freelancing for McClatchy newspapers and other media outlets, was detained while on assignment in Syria. On this anniversary, our company motto, One McClatchy, means more to us than ever. As we at Beyond the Bubble and McClatchy's Washington Bureau stand firmly with the Tice family and hope for Austin's safe return. Here's his mother, Deborah, describing the battle to bring him home. We never would have imagined that we weren't going to know anything about where he is or who's holding him. How's that even possible? Across the country this month, McClatchy is raising flags and banners in Austin's honor, helping to bring attention to his plight. You can help too by tweeting with the hashtag FreeAustinTice or sharing a Facebook post in his name as we keep Austin in our thoughts today and every day. And now for today's episode. If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy based in Washington, D.C. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we wanted to take a look at the Jobs Guarantee Initiative and the man behind it, Representative Ro Khanna from California. We caught up with him over the phone. He'll help break down why he believes the Democratic Party is ready for a sweeping bill like this and what it means to rally behind other issues like single-payer health care. Then we've got Dave Weigel from The Washington Post who's going to help us understand what this all means for the new face of the Democratic Party. All right, you ready, Andrea? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared and fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So our first guest this week is Ro Khanna, a congressman from California's Bay Area. He's also one of Congress's most liberal members, having introduced a jobs guarantee bill last month, one of the latest ideas to catch fire inside the Democratic Party's liberal wing. We wanted to have the congressman on to explain why at least some of the ideas are good politics for his party and let you, the listener, decide if he's right. Congressman, I want to thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me on. So, Congressman, if you can, defend why your view of politics, whether that is support for something like single-payer health care or the jobs guarantee that I know you've put a lot of energy and, and resources in to coming up with your own legislation on that. Explain why these things make for good politics, because I think it's fair to say that a lot of people, when they hear about this for the first time, are going to be skeptical. So give them your best explanation. Bain Capital did a report and McKinsey saying that the biggest challenge to America being competitive and growing its economy is income inequality. The reason is that consumers won't have enough money to spend, and that's what fuels the American economy. So if you believe this, if you accept my thesis that our challenge has to be to provide equal opportunity in a digital age to people in places left behind, then there are a number of policies that follow. Uh, First is my proposal of expanding massively the earned income tax credit. What I've said is, why not put that money directly in the pockets of workers? You could have given every American making $75,000 or under an $8,000 raise if you had expanded the earned income tax credit instead of the Trump proposal. Second, what I've said is, let's have universal health care. And third is job opportunities for all. 
Uh, this means we need to go to places that have been left behind and bring new industry and new jobs there. What I've said, one, is we need tech companies and new industries to locate in places that are not just on the coast. And a job opportunity bill actually helps subsidize, incentivize people to be hired in places left behind. So, Congressman, I, understand, I don't think many people would disagree that there is a deep inequality in the country right now. In fact, you really see it even in a lot of the Republican rhetoric, including from President Donald Trump during his own presidential campaign. I think the question is, I mean, what you're talking about, by your own admission, I think you would say really big bold, sweeping policy, the type of which we really haven't seen in recent American history and arguably ever in, in American history. And I guess my question is, politically speaking, I mean, how does this work? Well, we sell it by saying this is going to help you. It's going to help precisely middle-class America. If you believe that premiums are too high and you're paying too much for health care, allow there to be access to Medicare for all so you can have a cheaper option for your premiums. If you believe that you haven't had a raise in the last 20 or 30 years, then have tax cuts geared towards working families through expanding the earned income tax credit instead of giving those tax breaks to investors and shareholders. If you believe that uh, your community hasn't had jobs and opportunities, then allow the government to incentivize the job creation in those communities. So I think these are policies that are intended to support the free enterprise. I believe in free enterprise, but I believe free enterprise shouldn't just work for the privileged few and the connected. I believe free enterprise should work for working families. You had, you told me something interesting when I interviewed you a couple of months ago, basically saying that don't look at this so much as left or right, but as status quo versus change. Basically, the citizenry of America is in a place where it feels financially insecure, and they're looking for a party to propose something to meet the scale of that challenge, and scale being the, the, the important word there, that to convince people that Democrats have something that they want to buy into, you have to propose something large. It can't be, well, we want to cut you know, middle-class taxes by 2%, you know, something like that, which has been maybe more of the traditional, more incrementalist approach from Democrats in recent decades. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you look at the President Trump, what he said to people is, you're not doing as well. Your kids aren't going to do as well. I'm going to restore your pride. I'm going to bring back your communities. And I'm not going to do it through incremental policies. The way I'm going to do it is stopping immigration, stopping trade, and blaming uh, people who look different from you. And those were appalling policies, not consistent with our values. But he was proposing is something uh, dramatic. Now, I think most Americans don't believe personally in his policy proposals, but thought he would shake things up and at least empathized with uh, their level of economic anxiety. What we need to do as a Democratic Party is acknowledge that economic anxiety, acknowledge that for many Americans, the future seems uncertain, and figure out how they're going to have those ladders of opportunity in a new economy where technology is having a huge impact in a globalized world. And just talking about a 2% middle class tax cut or targeted policies isn't sweeping enough for the transformation we're seeing in our economy. Is what I hear you saying that Democrats need to find a way to go bigger than Trump? I would put it go smarter than Trump. 
uh, I think when I go to these communities, what I see is people get it. They understand the economy is changing. They understand that there are new jobs and new industries. And what they want is a clear pathway towards that. Now, Trump is saying, I'm going to let you keep the old. I'm going to let you keep your old industries. We're going to deregulate. We're going to stop trade. And most folks say, well, I get that that's probably not a long-term solution, but at least it's something. We have a tougher bar as Democrats. We've got to say, you know what? You're right that the economy is changing. Here is how you and your kids are part of that economic future and have a real economic plan that assures them of that. That's a tougher sale than just defending the past, but Americans have always been part of embracing the future. I think what has been frustrating for them is policies that they think aren't going to get them to the future. When we talk about job training, but there's no job at the end of it. When we talk about tax cuts, but it's not what will restore them to a life that uh, uh, they can stay in their communities. So we need to understand that they're really under assault with a lot of these forces and be specific about how they're going to have a better life in the future. Yeah, Congressman, it's fair to say that the policies you're proposing and your your viewpoint, I think, more broadly about politics and what the Democratic Party needs to do was, uh, until recently, a very minority viewpoint within the party. Maybe that began to change with Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, but it feels now like there is more momentum behind that. And you can point to anything like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's primary victory, which we've talked about at length on this podcast, but also just the, the policies you see a lot of just run-of-the-mill Democratic candidates. It's not unusual to see a Democratic candidate embrace something like Medicare for all. I mean, is this just a party that right now is just feels like it needs to find something new and fresh to have success politically? I think the party is realizing uh, that uh, we are in transformative times that call for big ideas. And I think that should be a huge responsibility. I mean, our past political generations in this country have done great things, whether it was winning the Cold War, whether it was having Eisenhower's vision of the GI Bill and funding research universities and supporting infrastructure. Why should we, uh, as our generation, not think bold and big in what we can do to help America lead in the 21st century? The Democrats will win when we inspire. And policies that are focus group, poll tested, that may appeal to a particular demographic, don't offer a governing vision. I think we need to have a governing vision. That doesn't mean that everyone needs to agree with my specific policies, but they need to have policies that are bold enough to meet the moment in our times. You know, Alex and I are both from Texas, where Republicans actually say things like, oh, they're going to turn us into California as like a GOTV effort. What is it like when you're out in Kentucky and Ohio talking about really exporting California policies? Well, look, California is at 4% or so economic growth. My district produces more wealth uh, than most nations. I, I don't think Texans uh, deep down would want an America that didn't have Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, Salesforce, and that these were Chinese companies. I mean, that, that wouldn't help our uh, ability to lead the 21st century. I think that uh, when you go to most parts of the country, they have a view that they want to be participating in this new economy, but they candidly don't think that they have the opportunity to do so. It seems 
distant. It seems like a lot of the benefits of Silicon Valley have not really been shared by most uh, uh, Americans in, in, in these places. It seems like their kids are being left out of those opportunities. So I, I think if we can show uh, people that, look, they can now participate in this new economy, you don't have to leave. You don't have to actually leave your community because the point is, I don't think we should run away from a vision of the future. We've got to just talk about how we increase the access to that future. Is this a strategy, would you say, aimed at expanding the electorate for Democrats or winning back parts of the country that they haven't been able to? It's both. But I'm, I, I don't think, look, I'm all for expanding the electorate just as an end in itself. We want people inspired and voting. But I don't want to win elections that write off half the country. I, I think uh, we need to have a vision that's going to be an American vision, an American vision for the 21st century that is going to convince people and communities left out that they have an economic stake. Congressman, is there such a thing as going too far? You know, there has been a movement among some activists to abolish ICE. I mean, is that something that you support? And, you know, more broadly, is is there some piece of this where the Democrats can embrace something that maybe is too radical for many Americans? And do those social type changes make it a tougher sell in, in the parts of the country that you're talking about? I, I do think there are, we have to be thoughtful about it. First of all, I, I believe that we need to protect our borders and we need an enforcement uh, agency to do that. So I would talk about reforming ICE. I, I wouldn't talk about abolishing ICE, and I haven't. Uh, what I've said is that we need to make sure that ICE has, the Justice Department has jurisdiction over it so that they're not abusing human rights and that we need to stop the abuse that's taking place. But I definitely think that we need to be a party that respects our borders and, and believes in border enforcement. I think we should welcome all perspectives and then arrive at a, at a policy that's going to be win the uh, hearts and minds of the majority of Americans. Great. Hey, Congressman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. So, Andrea, it's a big old theory of politics that he's got, and you can certainly understand it on some level, particularly after Trump's success in 2016. But I, I don't know. I still have some skepticism that this is exactly what voters, particularly middle class voters, are looking for. What about you? I think if you encapsulate all of that in California's policies exported to the rest of the country, it gets a little scary for, <laughs> for some of our McClatchy markets out there. <laughs> it just might. So there we have the political argument for some of Democrats' big ideas from one of the most liberal members of Congress. Next, we want to bring on somebody who has the pulse of the Democratic Party, Washington Post's Dave Weigel. Dave's going to walk us through how this is playing out in some of the primaries that are wrapping up this summer. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So walk us through what we've seen so far in some of these House primaries. Are folks lining up with what Congressman Khanna is, is proposing here? It's a good way of framing it because I think Congressman Khanna is one of the more realistic <laughs> uh, progressives out there, evidenced by him endorsing both Joe Crowley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I believe the only congressman who did that. Maybe not his finest moment. Maybe not, but he's one of those guys who I think is, he thinks that the party needs to be purged, but not everyone who has not been purged yet is, is a bad person. And so... What you found, I think, is a couple of popular ideas, let's say the public option for health care, if not Medicare for all, uh, raising the minimum wage, not accepting corporate PAC money, which is a, a kind of a crisp phrase that doesn't mean a whole lot, but is very popular. A, a few things that were left-wing ideas maybe six years ago, they're now widely accepted. And uh, someone like Kana 
it has no problem campaigning for Democrats who've, who've gotten on board with most of that. Frankly, the, the lack of a discussion of foreign policy, the, the fact that everything is oriented around economic justice and Trump and w- the White House's corruption, that's probably good for Democrats and staying unified. Frankly, from week to week, you can write a story about their disunity, but to me, it looks a lot like elections are going on. <laughs> like, there's always going to be disagreements during an election. By, by October, they want to be on the same team. And as a side note, you mentioned the lack of discussion of foreign policy. I can't remember an election just overall that's had less discussion of foreign policy. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not even even in 2014, people were talking about Iran and then the the Iranian deal in the context of 2016 presidential election. I, I don't hear it mentioned in any race or candidate. You, uh, you see days. it sometimes at the very end of a, of a kind of a kitchen sink ad. It'll be this Democrat is going to let uh, illegal immigrants into the country and they want to raise your taxes. And then also they supported the Iran deal. That's about <laughs> right. how you see it. Right. I'm saying inside right. in, intra-democratic politics, the fight over foreign policy is pretty, is, is pretty limited. I don't want to get too in the weeds on it because it, it's, I'm mentioning it as a thing that is not happening in this election. I'm saying that most Democratic debates are really about whether you are quote-unquote establishment or not, and whether you take quote-unquote corporate money or not. And it's actually pretty easy for a lot of established Democrats to pass that test. Uh, most, I mean, by, we might get through these primaries with only Joe Crowley having lost. That's not nothing. I mean, 2014, uh, only Eric Cantor lost on the Republican side, and that, that ended up mattering quite a lot. But my point is the party can remake itself without a lot of people losing their careers, a lot of civil wars happening, because the fights they're having are about a couple of issues. They basically, uh, they're, they're divided between Democrats who are, are are fresh and have always been right on those positions, and Democrats who've only recently come around to those positions. And, and I want to talk a little bit more later about some of maybe the subtle ways that the party has moved to the left with a lot of its nominees. But before we move on, uh, there's you know so much attention's been paid to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Dave, I mean, do you mm-hmm. see her? And, and that kind of primary victory in isolation, which it mostly has been in this election, or do you see that as a, a sign of things to come for the Democratic Party? Well, it's isolated in in one respect that Ocasio-Cortez has actually been pretty honest about, which is that that is, stands out as the low turnout primary of the year. The very few Democratic primaries have had that few people turn out. Less than 30,000 people voted in that race compared to like 120,000 voted in Hawaii's first district. People hopefully know congressional districts are the same size. It should be the same number of people voting. Ocasio-Cortez told uh, one reporter in Michigan that the win number for Abdul, the way he won, was assuming lower turnout. And all Democratic voters are basically coming out this year. So there haven't been many openings for insurging candidates because you generally, your past to victory is piling up all of your faithful. Maybe you run out, but if the other person hasn't turned out their base, you're fine. And and the only person to be able to turn out his base, ironically, was the head of the Queen's Democratic Party. Uh, you know, Gretchen Whitmer, who is not the head of the Michigan Democratic Party, turned out to be in Michigan uh, an astounding turnout operator. And looking at the next couple of weeks of primaries, it's one reason I'm pretty skeptical of another upset. Obviously, I don't rule it out. I, I think there's been an overcorrection of everyone covering every left-wing primary because a lot of people slept on Ocasio-Cortez. But in general, I look at kind of the turnout numbers and I, I say, okay, well, if this is equivalent to like a presidential pr- primary turnout, I don't see where this works. We still have abolish ICE, but have things changed for the Democratic Party since maybe six months ago when they were shutting down the government over mm-hmm. DACA and it seemed like they really wanted to hang their hats on being the party of minorities? 
Uh, if you boil it down, Democrats want the immigration argument to be about innocent people, especially children, being deported when all they want to do is provide for their family. Uh, even the a couple of Democrats step in it because ICE released a reporter. They had deported this uh, guy at a rest stop when he was driving his wife to the hospital to give birth. A lot of Democrats jumped on this because that seemed like a sympathetic case. ICE then said, oh, and also the guy was wanted for murder in Mexico. It, it really did feel kind of like a rope-a-dope on ICE's part. So it's the same emphasis Democrats have wanted. There was an irritation with the rise of abolish ICE as a catchphrase, but even the abolish ICE uh, advocates like Ocasio-Cortez ICE is the group that is deporting these uh, parents of children who've not committed any crime. Maybe like they ran a a stoplight 20 years ago. Why do we have this bloated organization, twice the budget of the FBI, doing that? Why can't we rethink that? We don't think we can win it if people imagine crime not being prosecuted because we because Democrats are too soft on it. It's, it's interesting. I mean, we there was so much discussion about immigration. One of the fascinating things to me as you watch, I mean, literally, you know, 100 plus Democratic candidates from all over the country run and, and win Democratic primaries, sometimes in very conservative areas. Yeah. It's hard to find any of them who would actually hold what we would consider conservative views on immigration. Yeah. Or really conservative views on just about any issue. And it raises this interesting question. If you're talking to look at someone like Jason Crow, who's about as kind mm-hmm. of establishment, mainstream Democrat you can find, but he's running on gun control mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You know, even for the quote unquote moderate Democrats now, there's been a real shift to the left on a whole range of issues. Well, this is a problem I encounter as a reporter all the time, which is the tendency to there's two fixed points and one is closer to the center and one is closer to the to the extreme and sometimes often we are describing somebody as a centrist we being you know capital m media uh, when they just were not the most left-wing candidate in a race and you're describing crow had kind of this you know knucklehead and i'll say it you don't have to knucklehead opponent who, who, <laughs> you who, might tell him in uh, for those playing along whose who's campaign consisted of complaining that dccc had like tried to get him out of the race had the secret recording of Steny Hoyer. And a recording of Steny Hoyer saying, please get out of the race. And then I think lost a lot of his following when he created a kind of a silly video where he was pepper sprayed to prove a point that all schools should have pepper spray supplies. Um, my point being that because he was the left wing insurgent candidate, Crow got to find as the centrist. If you had to give us some parameters of the candidates who are finding success this cycle in Democratic primaries as mm-hmm. we're nearing the end of primary season, how would you put them in a box? I'd say authenticity and ability to raise money. And this has actually think been key to the weakening Nancy Pelosi's grip on the party, because in the past, in cycles where Democrats have won, often the, the Democratic Party in D.C. has had a very big role in promoting candidates and getting them funded. They've urged along some successful candidates this time, but you've seen People in races where Democrats weren't able to raise $10,000 before, they can now raise three hundred, four hundred thousand. 400000 So I think another thing Pelosi sometimes misread about the party, she was asked a lot hypothetically in, uh, in 2017, would you support pro-life Democrats? And as far as I can tell, there are no pro, pro-life as we understand it, Democrats running in open seats. They are for maintaining the status quo. Maybe you could get them to vote for some kind of limitation. Get them to vote for the Hyde Amendment, let's say. But pro-life used to mean uh, you are going to vote to ban abortion, and there's no Democrat running on that. Uh, There's there's one running in rural Tennessee. 
I there think. is. There was, okay. yeah, it was There's pointed out to me a couple weeks ago. <laughs> right, right. I, I, and I remember writing uh, earlier this year, you know, after asking a bunch of Democrats, hey, show me like a pro-life Democrat, someone mm-hmm. who opposes Roe v. Wade, and it was a bunch of shrugs, mm-hmm. mostly. But someone pointed out to me there was someone um, would not consider them in a, a real you know, top-tier battleground. Oh, so yeah. even okay. second-tier I'm or even third I'm surprised Democrats didn't point out something that you would not consider to be pro-life. There's something very, very far, far short of that. Right. I've not seen any Democrats stray very far from Hillary Clinton's agenda in 2016, uh, but it turns out without 20 years of attacks on the messenger, that that message is not terribly unpopular in these kind of suburbs. David, any big picture thoughts you want to leave the listeners with about what we've learned about the Democratic Party from all these primaries? Well, the Democratic Party itself, I think, is is in most of the country very weak because, as you saw with Republicans eight years ago, these extra party organizations indivisible. And I think the voting base of the Democratic Party is organized. It's pretty center left. It's gotten a little left, more left wing since Trump took office. The party itself has less control over what they do. I think the exception being the California primaries, are they very smartly kind of spent and organized around candidates who could get through the, the jungle primary. But they did so after some sorting by local activists, which again, did not match what the California Democratic Party told people to do. Hey, everyone, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. All right. Well, between uh, Alex and Dave, been out on the trail extensively this primary season. I think we've probably got more insight to the Democratic Party than just about anybody else, more than me anyway. I live in Texas world. This is what we do for you, the listeners. We try to get you the best information. Hopefully we did that today. Okay, that means it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Andrea, is it everyone's favorite segment? The lightning round, is that everyone's favorite segment? Certainly Alex's favorite segment. It's apparently my favorite segment. It is my favorite segment, and I am going to go first. And just a reminder for you, the listener, we are timing ourselves now. 30 seconds, that's all you get to tell you something important that you need to know as you go about the week. I'll set the timer. Let's go. Okay, I want to talk about Act Blue. Chances are, if you've ever donated to a Democratic campaign or any kind of liberal entity of any kind, you've used Act Blue to donate an online contribution. They say that they are going to raise or, or process $1.5 billion in online donations. How amazing is that? Well, that's actually almost half of the total online contributions that they'll have processed in their entire history. This is a group that started in 2004, shows just how much, how energized the Democratic grassroots online fundraising base is. How'd I do? Uh, a little over, but... Uh, I think you started it early. Perhaps. I think you started it early. I think we're good. Okay, Andrea, I'm going to time you now. Okay. And ready, set, go. All right, I would like to use my lightning round to spotlight a congressional race happening in Dallas where Republicans are uh, piling on to help a member of GOP leadership, Pete Sessions. Um, they have the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is aligned with Paul Ryan, just reserved almost $3 million to help him. This is uh, a race that they weren't originally involved in because Sessions, who used to lead the uh, campaign committee, said he didn't need their help. But this is exactly the type of district that our last guest last week, Liam, was suggesting could be a real problem for Republicans this November. Andrea, that was amazing. My stopwatch says you took 29 and a half seconds for that. Really well done. I had so much more. (laughs) And yet, you cannot say it because our lightning rounds are just that. They're lightning. Andrea, a pleasure as always. Anytime. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. 
Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.